Well, certainly had a uh, interesting day yesterday. I'm not sure about you, but uh, last night um, the, uh, the the news of the election and uh, a new prime minister and all that sort of thing, a lot of change for our nation. But I know one thing has remained since our scriptures were written was that God has called on his people to pray for those leaders of nations. And so I think our nation needs that more now than ever. Um, not a political comment at all, but just I know that the, the, the path for the next few years ahead to navigate are going to be very difficult, no matter who was in government. Um, our economy is poised to absolutely tank, if you listen to some economists. And so there are going to be some potentially pretty tough times ahead for whoever's governing. So we need to uphold and continue to uphold our leaders in prayer. So don't negate that responsibility that God has called on each of us to do, to pray for our leaders. So let's now pray for our leaders. Heavenly Father, the results of yesterday's election, Lord, are, uh, are yet again something that for, are surprising for some, uh, not for others. Uh, but Lord, we uphold Anthony Albanese in prayer as our new Prime Minister, Lord, he has a, a, a tough job ahead. And so we do pray that you would give him wisdom. Like last week, I prayed, Lord, that you would have whatever leader leads our nation, fear the Lord like David and seek your wisdom like Solomon. We pray that, Lord, you would guide our nation through these next three years of federal government and that, Lord, we would see a kinder society. We would see a more loving society. We would see a society that fears you, Lord Jesus. And Lord, even if persecution increases in the church, Lord, we know that that has got the absolute blessing attached to it, that wherever the church is persecuted, it only flourishes even more. And so whatever path lay ahead, may we remain faithful to you and continue to pray for our nation and pray for its leaders. In this name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So chapter 15, sorry, should have turned this off. Hello? Dad? Yeah, can you call me later? I'm about to preach. Yeah, I know it's my birthday. Wish me happy birthday later, it's fine. Aren't you about to preach too? Okay, all right, you'd, you'd better go and do that. All right, all right, see you, talk this afternoon, right? bye. Sorry. You know, mobile phone interruptions are sort of a part of our life right now, aren't they? You know, and imagine if in Old Testament times they had mobile phones and God could call people and say, interrupt their life and just interrupt them and say, hey, I've got a message for you. Wouldn't that be lovely if, if that could happen? Imagine that next phone interruption you get at a really inopportune time is God saying, hey, I've got something for you, a little message. Well, that's not quite exactly how it happened in the Old Testament, but God is trying to reach his people with a message. And the question is, will they respond to God and answer and, and, and engage, or will they send God through the message bank? And will they listen, or will God's desires to be heard Delivered by special servants called prophets, will they be listened to? Today we are picking up the story of chapter 15, the book of 2 Kings. 
And the Bible is arranged in a unique way for, for, for books. It's not arranged chronologically. And so many people enter a sort of a black hole when it comes to Kings, Chronicles and that sort of stuff. If you've made it through the, the, the law books and you, now you get through you know, all the rules and regulations, if you're, if you're fine with that and you keep moving, now it comes really confusing because the nation split into two and then you've got these stories that of these two nations, like, what is going on? But if you've got, ever got there and gone, oh, my goodness, how on earth does this fit in? Um, don't be alarmed. Um, stick with us and stick with the Bible. Um, and the Old Testament Bible is, is sort of in three genres. You've got history, you've got poetry, and you've got prophecy. And the stories can seem to be jumbled and confusing with the division of God's people into two kingdoms, ten tribes with the north in Israel and two in the south called Judah, and the fall of the north to Assyria and the south to Babylon, which is coming up, just hold your horses. Um, the tendency can be to give up sometimes. You go, man, this is just, what, what is going on? But I've got a handout for you today, which Matt and a few others are going to um, hand out, which might actually help you um, and be a helpful tool as you f see how it sort of fits chronologically um, with the books of the Bible and how they go. So they'll be handed out. Um, but as you look at that handout, you will see that Israel and Judah, um, uh, they, they, are, they are listed separately, um, but they do overlap with some of those dates. Um, those events are recorded in the historical record of Kings and Chronicles, and along with them are the prophets. And as I said, there is some overlap, but it might help you in your reading of the Bible to see how it all fits together and where some of those books and the prophets fit in. Um, where we left last week, the nation had split into two kingdoms, and while in the lower story, this was a conflict between Jeroboam and Rehoboam, in the upper story, God was still achieving his purposes. But the question is, and, and I'm not sure if you've asked this question, but why did God divide the nation of Israel into? Why? Well, the answer is, God divided the nation because his people were sending a wrong message. As the story unfolds from Abraham up until now, we see progressively that Israel stopped being fully devoted to God. They became complacent, disobedient and rebellious and they no longer showed God's plan to the surrounding nations. If God continued to bless them under those conditions, it would send the wrong message to the Israelites and to the surrounding nations about who God is. And so God divided the nation because his people were sending the wrong message. Remember how Jeroboam encouraged Israel to worship golden calves as their God so he would not lose control of the people if they went to Jerusalem, which is in the southern kingdom, to make sacrifice and worship their true God in the temple? They were being led astray and were sending the wrong message. Yet this does not mean that God abandoned the northern kingdom. What God did was he sent prophets, he sent messengers to call his people back to obedience. In the northern tribes, they were always given the opportunity to change their mind. In fact, 
God gives them 208 years to change their mind and he gives them prophets to help them change their minds. If they were to turn their hearts back to God, God would utilise them in the unfolding of his upper story. See, God wanted his people to be blessed by him so that others would be drawn to their God. Have you ever heard of the saying, blessed to be a blessing? Right? You know where that comes from? It comes from Genesis chapter 12. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. See, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you all, I will curse. All peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. The nation of Israel was going to be blessed by God so that they could be a blessing to all the nations around them and be that beacon for God. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This was why God chose a people for himself. This was the promise God gave to Abraham, confirmed it with Moses and David. And his purpose remained. Yet because of the unfaithfulness of Israel, God divided the kingdom because they were sending the wrong message. The nation rebelled from God, becoming complacent in devotion, disobedient to God's commands and worshippers of pagan gods. I want to take a look at what some of the kings of Israel did in rebellion to God. The first of those is 1 Kings 16, 29 to 33. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by his wife Jezebel. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. They became just like the pagan nations that the Lord drove out before Israel. When people looked at the nation of Israel, they saw nothing different about them than they did anyone else. Could the same be said about us? When people observe our lives other than where we go on a Sunday morning, would their observation be of us? Are we just like everyone else? Or are we communicating a different message with our lives? You see, the temptation is real to become complacent in devotion and disobedient to God's commands. Not only is the temptation real, it's also very easy. Over the last two years, you've become very accustomed to not doing much. 
we've lived comfortably, most of us, you know, how much more time have we spent on the couch? It's been great in parts. Um, and some of us have had little activity. Now, for a season, that's okay. And, and I look at the last couple of years sort of like a bit of a sabbatical in some ways. We've had a break from the busyness and the activity of all the different spinning plates we were trying to keep hold of in 2019. We've been able to put all those plates down and now choose which plates we pick up again, right? We've got a break from that busyness. In the last couple of days, I've been down in Melbourne at a pastor's um, gathering on, on Friday and having a chat with different pastors recently, not just there but up here, the theme has been coming through pretty strong in the church and, and it's mirroring our culture. That commitment and attendance and particularly volunteers to do things are less consistent and people are doing far less now than they did in 2019. And the church is perfectly mirroring culture in this area. It appears we are no different to our culture. Now, if you, we use this opportunity to realign our priorities and establish new healthy patterns in our life, then that is a great opportunity for us. But what priorities will take precedence? Will the priorities God wants for us take precedence? Or will we look like everyone else in our culture? Will we become complacent and disobedient or prioritise faithfulness and obedience to God when we pick those plates back up and choose which plates we spin again. In disobedience, God's people were sending a wrong message to themselves as well and to the surrounding nations. You know, if Graham, Lyle and myself went out on a Friday night and robbed banks... And then, you know, got our mug shots in the Chronicle um, and then showed up to, on Sunday morning like nothing had happened. That would send the wrong message, wouldn't it? It would send the wrong message about the church to the congregation and to our community. It would be necessary to remove us from our positions so that we would not be sending the wrong message. So in context of what is happening in Kings... To purify the message and representation of God's character, God divides the nation of Israel into two nations because God's people were sending the wrong message to themselves and to the surrounding nations. God divided the nation so that he could purify the message regarding his character. In the upper story, God is still accomplishing his plan for our salvation, upholding all of his promises, even though the nation divides. In fact, the nation dividing is a clarifying moment. It was so that his message could be purified regarding his character. See, God doesn't need all of the 12 tribes of Israel to fulfill his promise to Abraham and to David. At the end of the day... God does not have to work with all 12 tribes of Israel to accomplish his upper story plan to bring the Messiah into the world. He just needs to keep his promise to Abraham and to David to use their offspring in the lineage of the Messiah. And that explains why the 10 tribes are allowed to separate from the southern tribes 
and why God preserves the kingdom of Judah because it is in the lineage of Judah that carries God's covenant promise. From the offspring of David, from the tribe of Judah, God will bring the Messiah. The promise is fulfilled in Jesus. But God is a gracious God and a God of restoration and redemption. And so God constantly gave Israel chances to repent and turn back to him. This was done in the form of prophets. God sent prophets to the northern kingdom to call his people back to obedience. You know, prophets were were God's megaphones, right? They were to get your attention. Wake up! They They were God's megaphones, his mouthpieces to Israel. And he spoke warnings through them. Sometimes he asked them to do some rather strange things in order to get people's attention. So in biblical times, a prophet was a person specially chosen, anointed and empowered by God. A prophet was God's mouthpiece to make clear to people the will and truth of God. If there was a challenge or threat before Israel, God used a prophet to bring courage and strength to the people by reminding them of God's power to save them. And if Israel began to drift in their obedience, God used a prophet to warn the people of their disobedience to reveal to Israel the way back into a right relationship with God. If Israel continued in their disobedience, God used a prophet to pronounce God's wrath and judgment. When you read through your Bible, you can see how God sometimes had his prophets do really unusual things to catch the attention of Israel. See, God commanded the prophet Ezekiel to lay on his side for 390 days as a demonstration of the sin of Israel. Bit weird, right? God commanded the prophet Hosea, this one's a ripper if you're talking about weird, God commanded the prophet Hosea to marry an unfaithful prostitute as an illustration of Israel's unfaithfulness to the Lord. He had Hosea give his children names that spoke of God's judgment as well. How would it be if God asked you to name your child repent or perish? (laughs) Right? Oh, what's your name? Uh, I have two twins, they're repent and perish. Like, that's ridiculous, right? But that's what God asked Hosea to do as a reminder to everyone of the choice that we need to make. God commanded the prophet Isaiah to walk around naked for three years. This was done as a warning to the king of Assyria that if he didn't repent, then God would have him stripped and shamed. Oh, I'm glad I'm not a prophet. And I think you're even more glad. When you first hear of these stories, you can wonder, what in the world is God doing? But each of these very weird things, God has had his prophets do was all about God grabbing the attention of his people so he could get his message through. A message calling his people to turn from their sin and rebellion and turn back to God in obedience. God sent nine prophets to the 19 kings in Israel in a period of 208 years. The only prophet to the northern kingdom who was heard and obeyed was Jonah. And he was not heard and obeyed by the Israelites. He was heard by the Israelites, but not obeyed. He was heard 
and obeyed by the Ninevites in Nineveh. So the only successful prophet to, to the northern kingdom of Israel was Jonah, and it was only successful because it wasn't even Israel who repented and turned to the Lord. It was the Ninevites. God sent uh, many prophets, and, and, and I find it really ironic that the people who had the most opportunity over the years of their heritage to listen to God are the ones who turned a deaf ear to God. And yet you contrast them with the pagans of Nineveh who listened once and turned to God immediately. But today I want to look briefly at just one prophet. I want to focus in on one, and that is Elijah. Elijah and his encounter with the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah on Mount Carmel, as some people call it, otherwise known as Mount Carmel, the story of this encounter is 1 Kings chapter 18. And his story it really sort of begins in chapter 17 as God sends Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. And he said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So in response to evil King Ahab's evil, more so than any other king, God sends Elijah. And to get his attention, Elijah says there'll be no rain until he gives word. Elijah then left, and the Bible tells us he was fed by ravens. Um, brought him some meat in the morning and some bread as well. So how would that be? Tuck into some raven meat that they bring. I'm sure they've they sourced it from uh, ethically um, and uh, 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 sanitary sources. Um, Elijah was fed by those ravens and then when the brook dried up that he was staying beside um, because of course there'd been no rain God sends him into a town to stay with a widow that widow was housed and fed uh, by uh, that widow housed and fed Elijah and also she had a son but she was poor and she only had a little bit of oil and a little bit of flour and she was broke. Yet the whole time Elijah was there, Elijah was there, and in fact, until it rained again, her jug of oil and her jar of flour never ran out. The widow's son also then dies while Elijah is staying with her. And Elijah prays to God, God answers his prayer and brings the boy back to life. Pretty amazing. And then we come to chapter 18. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Verse 17, when he, that is Ahab, saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I love that, don't you? That this evil king calls God's prophet the troubler of Israel? No, no, no. No, he's not the troubler. You are. Verse 18, I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. 
Elijah went up to the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. And if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into two pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Imagine if this was the election yesterday, right? It's, it's, it's like two, you know, two parties against each other in a mighty smackdown, right? But the answer to this was whichever God sent fire, that is God. And consider the odds, right? So there's 450 prophets of Baal. And there's also 400 prophets of Asherah. They're up against one prophet of God. One. Now, it was the prophet of Elijah all on his own versus 850 prophets. It doesn't really seem fair, does it? It doesn't seem like a fair, fair showdown. 850 versus one to me, is extremely one-sided. But think of it this way. It is Elijah, one prophet of the true living God against 850 prophets of a false god. It is absolutely a one-sided battle in Elijah's favour. In Elijah's favour. 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? No matter what we may come up against, we need to remember that me plus God equals a majority. Verse 25, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call in the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull, given them, and prepared it. Then they called the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy. The connotation there is busy on the toilet. Or travelling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. When we cry out to a false god, there will never be any answer. Even if we cry out louder and louder, there will never be any answer from any man-made false god. People often look to idols such as fame and fortune, the best, the biggest, the brightest, the next, the fancy, the big house, the, the, you know, to, to try and find fulfilment, purpose and love. 
but it is all a false God that leaves us feeling completely empty and unfulfilled. People may pursue it harder and harder, more and more, but they continue to come up empty. There's also the trap of creating a false God by creating our own version of Jesus. As soon as you exclude or explain away any of the Bible's teaching, you've just created your own God. In fact, that God is you, because it's by your choice and your decision that you've created that. There are large portions of God's teaching which are very unpopular in our world, and now even some in Victoria that could land me in prison. But truth is still truth, regardless of how popular it is. The world wants us to rip out parts of the scriptures so it is less offensive to their ears. And I know why. When we cry out to a false god, there will never be any answer. If we make our own version of God by only picking the bits of the Bible to believe that we like, that we deem sanitary, that we deem to be okay, then we have made a false God. We may as well have made a golden calf. Verse 30, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the, of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water, and pour it on the offering of the wood. Now, four large jars is not a passata jar, right? A large jar he's talking about stands about this high, right? You know, 60, 80, 100 litres of water, right? That's what I was saying, four large jars, not a Posada jar, right? So fill four large jars with waters and pour it on the offering of the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he said, and they did it a third time. The water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord... The God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. That was some bonfire. After seeing this, the people, they cry out, The Lord is God. What a glorious thing to cry out, hey? To have all these people who are being led astray see God working in power and cry out, the Lord is God. Elijah then has the 850 prophets of the false gods killed and then he prays for rain. And eventually a cloud appears on the horizon at his seventh request. Go look, go look, go look. Israel got, Israel's God answered by fire and God still answers the prayers of his people today. 
This story is actually retold in the New Testament, in James chapter 5. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Here's the truth that remains with us today. You are never without hope because you are never without prayer. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Our prayers are powerful. Not because it's us who praise them, but because it's God who answers them. God is still speaking today. He's still trying to get us a message. The question we have though is, will we listen or will we ignore his message like the Israelites did? God speaks to us through his word, the Bible, and he's given us the Holy Spirit to speak to us, convict us, comfort us and illuminate God's word to us so we understand it. So I have a question, what is God saying to you today? Is he telling you to stop doing something, to go somewhere, to stop going someplace, to start something, to join something, to give up, to charge on? It's important that we listen to and hear the message that God is sending to us. It's written down for us to know. And it's also important that we respond in faith to what God is calling us to do. And maybe prayer is all we can do. Now more than ever do we need to pray for our nation, for our state, for our city, for our neighbourhood. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. You are never without hope because you are never without prayer. Let's continue to be a praying people who listen intently to what God is saying and do his will. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do want to do your will. Lord, we we want to listen to you. So Lord, speak to us. We want to respond in faith and obedience to the things that you are calling us to do. Lord, we thank you that you have written your message down to us. You have given us so much instruction that's so practical for our lives and how to live. You have revealed your character and will through your word to us. Lord, may we intently read it to know you better, to know your heart, to know your will. Lord, continue to guide us. And as we pray, Lord, answer our prayers. Lord, you've given us this word that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Lord, may we continue to seek your righteousness and may you continue to answer our prayers. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Tim.